Hi, I'm Jerry Grant, and this is a series of programs we're calling Disc Jockey Confidential here on WVUD and WVUD HD1, Newark, the voice of the University of Delaware. I'll be interviewing some of my fellow jocks to find out what path they took to arrive here at the radio station. We'll discuss their earliest experiences with music and radio and how those experiences inform their own show currently on WVUD. Our guest today is Don Barry, the longtime Friday night host of Avenue C, uh, our popular Monday through Friday evening jazz program. Don, how you doing? Doing great, Jerry. Thanks for coming down. Yep, pleasure to be here. Why don't you uh, give us a brief description of your show? It's the uh, Friday evening edition of Avenue C, and so now I back up with uh, Ron Smith, you know, the Red Hot and Blue show, and it rolls into uh, Friday nights. The show itself, pretty interesting cast of characters, uh, Monday through Friday. Each kind of has their own spin. The uh, Friday evening, you know, kind of, Try and pick up on Ron's groove a little bit, you know, keep some blues roots yeah, under I things. Like the, I like that about your, the way you start like that. That's cool. And then, mm-hmm. uh, you know, sort of classic and modern jazz, straight ahead jazz is, uh, is kind of my angle uh, on a Friday evening. Why don't you tell us where you were bred and born? Born, I guess, uh, in Hagerstown, Maryland. Didn't stay there long. Parents, my dad worked uh, for the uh, Boeing Company, uh, no. Uh, eventually worked for a couple of aircraft manufacturing companies, Boeing brought him to Delaware. So I showed up in Delaware, I guess at age six or seven, really don't remember being anywhere but Delaware, uh-huh. uh, but not born here. <laughs> right. What are your earliest memories of any kind of music at all? Right. So this would be, you know, my, way <laughs> my age, uh, you know, kind of growing up where you're becoming aware of music uh, in this, in the sixties. And so around here, uh, really, AM radio, and I still remember the station, WAMS, W-A-M-S. 1380. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, and uh, actually my father had an interest in shortwave radio, or actually uh, he, he had his license, can't think of it now, his call numbers were W3SKN. Ham, ham radio? Ham radio, yes. Okay. And so he had all kinds of antennas, and, and he knew ran into folks who were interested in radio, and he somehow knew Ed Hackendorn, who was a DJ uh, on WAMS. So, you know, at one point in my youth, and I think it might have been pre-teen, you know, I got to go to WAMS and see the radio station and Uh meet Ed Hackendorn. So, you know, that was my earliest exposure to radio, actually seeing a radio station. Uh, And then, of course, uh, you know, WAMS, uh, pretty much played, you know, the hits, the top 40. Sure. Um, and at that point, you know, I had an old reel-to-reel tape recorder that I actually, were, I'm in the process of moving, and uh, found this old reel-to-reel tape recorder that I had from my preteens where I used to record, couldn't buy the records, used to record the songs off of, uh, off off the- of WAMS mm-hmm. uh, and what have you. Uh, so, you know, AM radio, and I had, you know, Folks aren't going to know what I'm talking about, but you know, I had a small little transistor radio that you could get pretty cheap. Um, right. And, uh, Port- that, portable. Yeah, and at that mm-hmm. point, really only picked up AM. Um, so it's all you had to pick up in the early 60s. Yeah, and I liked the music, I have to say. <laughs> sure, sure. And it was a pretty interesting mix, even for commercial AM. There was a there was a pretty pretty nice mix. You would hear rock and soul and rhythm and blues on the same station in the same hour. So it was... Uh, it wasn't quite as compartmentalized uh, as it is now. Right. 
that observation has been made by many here. You know, he, I remember hearing, let the bird of paradise fly up your nose. And I got a tiger by the tail. I mean, straight country records. Yeah. I mean, novelty country records. Exactly. But, you know, everything would be kind of mixed in. The singing nun. You know, everybody was, everybody was showing up, you know? Yeah. Was there music in your home? I mean, first of all, let's do like, say, live. Did anybody play an instrument at home or? You know, uh, my mother had some early experience uh, playing the piano, and I think maybe in her youth there was a moment where she might actually sang with a little country western group for for a brief moment. But she could play the piano somewhat, mm-hmm. uh, and you know could sing somewhat, but didn't do it that often. But as a result, we did have uh, you know I'm very familiar with some of her record collection, which would be Hank Williams and. And, uh, you know, Patsy Cline and, and, you know, Elvis and, and folks like that. Those, sure. were, those were her faves. So I would, I would hear those. And I think I know the words to every single Hank Williams song. Nothing wrong with that? No. Her fave was I yeah. Saw the Light. You know, she's, she's religious. Uh, quite. And did your father have any records? Uh, no, he didn't really have much. Uh, you know, he worked a lot. Um, you know, don't really recall much. Uh, I know he liked country music as well, uh, but don't really recall anything specific as far as uh, I know. He like he's ninety six years old now, and he'll still you know he'll play Buck Owens and and some folks. So he, he definitely had uh, uh, interesting country music as well. Good. Was there a piano in your house? Um, my mother did have a piano for a while. Yes. Let's say you start to go to school. Do you remember that? Are you trying to like take lessons, or did trying to make you take lessons, or anything? Or well, yeah, I haven't thought about this in years. You just put the, the thought back in there. My given my mother's interest in music, she actually we used to go to Sunset Park a lot. Um, oh yeah, and mm-hmm. uh, saw a lot of acts there. But she thought that I should play the banjo, uh, so I actually did take. Um, some five-string banjo lessons for a while, but uh, never really did well there. It didn't stick? No. Who'd you see at Sunset Park? Do you have any memory of that? Or? Um, I remember we used to go quite often, uh, but I was really young at that point. I was probably, uh, you know, younger than 10 years old. So I remember the music. I remember, you know, the little snack shack <laughs> yeah, and some uh-huh. things. But I can't mm-hmm. remember any, I can't name any of the particular artists, but we were there on, you know, almost every other week basis when uh, oh. when there were performances there. You go to school. Where'd you go to school? Pleasantville Elementary, uh, George Reed Junior High, and uh, William Penn High School. And do you have any musical experiences there? I mean, did they, uh, I'd say one thing that amazes me with kids that went to public school, because I went to Catholic school, but everybody seems to have, they played records at lunchtime or something. I'm like, wow. Did you play, did they play records at lunchtime? There are no record no. players in my school. No, okay. <laughs> it makes me feel better. Yeah. Okay. Um, and uh, no, the only sounds would be the morning announcement, uh, you know, and maybe uh, they might have played, uh, we had to stand and play a Pledge of Allegiance, and there might have been, you know, some music behind that. Right. <laughs> that was about it. Right. I mean, I did try it. We were all forced uh, at some point, Maybe around sixth grade or seventh grade, we were forced to, uh, tr- everybody was forced to try out for the choir. And so, you know, I lasted, I th- only think 30 seconds, uh, mm-hmm. you know, on, uh, you know, my little moment to sing or what have you. So that clearly wasn't in my future. It was interesting. Uh, Pleasantville Elementary, I went the first year it opened. You know, there was a population explosion, you know, in the 60s in Newcastle County, everywhere actually, just 
was in crank out the new school uh, mode. And, uh, you know, so William Penn was built around that time as well. So when I graduated George Reed, I was the first class, you know, into William Penn uh, High School when it was brand new, mm -hmm. uh, you know, and went from ninth grade all the way through. For a long time, it might have been the largest graduating class in the state of Delaware, in the history of the state of Delaware. It was kind of like the peak of the baby boom right. know, rolling through. That's a mammoth building even to this it's day. It's so large that they, you know, it's one building, but it actually was cut in two. Ninth and 10th grade was one half, you know, and 11th and 12th was the other. I don't think it was so much to separate the grades, but if you had to walk from one end of the building to the other, you know, it would take 20 minutes or something. Yeah, so. right. Anything happening musical in high school? I mean, is, is your taste changing at all? Are you switching? Are you listening to different radio or anything going on there? Right. So, um, you know, still AM is kind of the only thing happening. I can't really put a finger on when FM starts to show up and FM radio receivers start to show up. Uh, right. And I start to then explore, you know, up and down uh, the dial and, uh, you know, end up on the bounce around on the left end of the dial and discovering some things down there. I don't think that was in high school. High school was still pretty much, you know, some folks had some record collections then, uh, but, uh, you know, still pretty much, if I remember right, it might, maybe FM was showing up then. I'm, you know, the years are starting to get fuzzy. Yeah, I think uh, I think you can say like, uh, you know, WDAS FM, I think is like 67 maybe. And MMRs a year or two later, maybe. That's where a lot of people went when they were tired of WAMs, for instance. Yeah, or, uh, um, MMR, Michael Tearson, uh, you know, those were my first FM memories. And then I started, you know, edging up and down the uh, left side of the dial. Well, the whole dial, but it got interested in the left side of the dial. And you actually was able to pick up uh, WXPN. And so XPN really started to have a huge impact on me. And I... I at, for a while, I could also pick up, this might have been rolling into early years of college, I could pick up WPFW out of Washington, D.C. Uh, huh. for a while. Now, if I had, and actually, I got so interested, I had my own little FM antenna contraption that I was always messing with, doing everything I could to try and pull in other stations. Sure, sure. Um, but I could get PFW for a while. And what was that? What kind of a station was that? So PFW, you know, big non-commercial station out of Washington, D.C., part of the Pacifica network. And, you know, oh, I'll, okay. I'll mention just briefly, I actually interviewed for program director for the Pacifica network, one of their stations out in California. Uh, obviously didn't work out. Right. Uh, but that was uh, post-graduation. But uh, and we should, just for the audience sake, we'll just say Pacifica, I think, was was that like BAI up in New York? Or, I mean, right. They had five stations. You know, New York, which which is in was in great financial trouble. I'm not sure what kind of condition they're in right now. PFW in DC. Uh, forget the call stations. KPFW maybe the one on the West Coast, um, and all of them very high power. You know, fifty thousand watts or what have you. The uh, Washington DC station uh, primarily jazz. But, uh, you know, other music as well. And very, very, very political uh, at the time. You know, very anti-war and uh, anti-government, I guess I'll say. Right. Uh, so, uh, uh, publicly, publicly funded, right? But not, but not like National Public Radio. Right, or, right. Like publicly funded by the actual public. Right, 100%. And they're still, and I still listen to WPFW out of Washington because I can mm -hmm. stream them. 
So what year did you graduate from high school? Uh, 1974. Oh, well, you're a kid. Yeah. Oh, you're a yeah. kid. Yeah, All right, okay. Vietnam, you know, I was registered for the draft, but, uh, uh, you know, the war was winding down. and You had uh, a high number. Yeah, I mean, you know, 74, the war ended in 75. They really weren't yeah. drafting anybody in 74. But, you know, I, it, you know, you didn't know that, you know, folks just a year or two younger than me, the horror stories or whatever. Yeah, sure, yeah, uh, sure. But, you know, that was obviously something that uh, uh, was all around you and, and was, you know, a consideration, shall we say. When and, you graduate from high school, do you go directly to college or? Yeah, uh, straight from William Penn College. Uh, uh, to hear an interesting story, I don't want to share too much, but you know, traumatic childhood, homeless for a moment or two. Um, a guidance counselor applies for me to go to the University of Delaware uh, and just shoots me into the system. You know, I'm the first person in my family to graduate high school. I remember, and I, you know, I'm not going to any orientations or anything. So I remember the first day of classes, right? I'm like, well, I guess I got to drive the Newark. Right. So I drive the Newark and uh, I'm walking up Main Street looking for the I'm thinking it's like high school. There's a building that's University of Delaware. Yeah. Right. right. So I see, okay. I see somebody on Main Street and I'm like, hey, can you tell me where the University of Delaware is? And he looks at me like I'm from outer space. <laughs> what do you mean? You're at the University of Delaware. Uh, so, you know, it was, uh, you know, it was a, a major uh uh, cultural awakening, shall we say, to uh, end up in Newark uh, at that point. So you were a commuter then, I'm assuming? Or? Commuted for a while, actually. Uh, yeah, I guess I could share a little bit. was actually living in a van for a while. Of course, vans were popular at that point. You know, that was a hip thing to have, and you'd kind of set it up. But right. living in a van, the uh, van caught fire, uh, and so I lost my, my van home. And... Uh, you know, apply for some financial aid and what have you, and was living, then started living in the dorms. So I lived in the dorms for, for a while. Did you get out in four years? or I did. You know, it was you know, financial issues and whatever. I couldn't afford to hang out, uh, actually, four years. And in those four years, I actually had a double major. I had enough credit. I had a double major. I got interested in a couple subjects, <laughs> right, and concentrated in them. So a double major plus... In, in psychology and sociology, and would have had a minor, I guess, is what they call it, in geography. And it's interesting, all those things did play out in a career later in life, including the, the geography, you know, with working in planning with the state planning office and some other things. So sure, it's interesting how it all kind of fell together at some point. I've seen your maps. I've seen your <laughs> maps. You do, you do wonderful work. You're still doing that? I mean, you're retired, but... Yeah, I still, I still actually work with the university, uh, you know, and the Department of Urban Affairs and, and uh, you know, the college, uh, Center for Demography and Applied Research. You know, I still do some work with them. So now, once you get into school, you get into college uh, and you're, you're in the dorms now or something, is your, is your, are your musical tastes changing or, or are your radio options changing or what's going on there? Right. So I think the, one of the key things for me was, and it was about the same time, I guess, I, I fell into that left end of the dial and ran running into WPFW and XPN. And, you know, a lot of ways, maybe folks have mentioned this before on, on your, uh, on your uh, program here, but uh, XPN was really the model in some ways for WXDR slash WVUD. I mean, we mirrored uh, their programming almost show for show. 
uh, for many years. I mean, our root, there was, you know, same time slot, you know, they had a program called Homegrown. Uh, you know, we had roots, you know, they had a blues program, they had a jazz program, uh, you know, international music. Uh, and we really, and even our name, though, XPM was Experimental Pennsylvania Radio. <laughs> we were XDR Experimental Delaware Radio. Uh, we, okay. uh, we really, early on, mirrored in a lot of ways uh, what was going on at uh, uh, XPN. And XPN was, uh, really was pretty progressive. Uh, I mean, they were cutting edge out there politically, musically, in, in all, sorts of, all sorts of ways. And so I, a lot of things there. So I would say the early XPN um, and, um, and PFW, the politics on PFW, plus, you know, I... Coming to university kind of radicalized me, you know, early on. You know, now I guess I would be like a Bernie Sanders sort of guy. But, sure. uh, you know, the left, the left was, uh, well, you know, you had the SDS. I mean, the left was, left politics were not unknown, uh, you know, in the late 60s, 70s. Uh, sure. By any means. And it sort of faded away for a while or, you know, weren't quite as prominent and now they're they're kind of back uh, more so than they they have been for a while. So yeah, it was a moment of like discovering new music and you know commercial radio. You know, it's almost sound like fundraising or what have you. But you know, the, the only music that you know you could hear uh, on commercial radio. I mean, you wouldn't hear blues, you wouldn't hear jazz, you certainly wouldn't hear what was I guess called world music. And the first time I heard those things, they really resonated with me. And and I had never heard. I mean suburban Newcastle County, shall we say, <laughs> I never heard jazz. I'd never, didn't even know it existed. You know, it was, it was completely unknown to me. And, uh, you know, I'd, I'd picked up on the blues a little bit from, you know, the British, uh, you know, rock invasion. I mean, I'd heard, I didn't know I was listening to the blues. You know, I'd heard Canned Heat, you know, going up to the country and right. the animals, boom, boom, you know, which, sure. you know, John Lee Hooker piece and, you know, the cream you know, Crossroads, Crossroads and whatnot, and, uh -huh. you know, the first uh, uh, Rolling Stones album or whatnot where they're all covering blues. And I'm just like, hey, these are great songs. And then, you know, I've forgotten how, but, you know, at some point somebody's pointing out, well, that's not the original version. Uh, sure. You know, that's John Lee Hooker, that's Muddy Waters, that's whatever. And, uh, you know, you ought to check them out and, you know, and, you know, when I came across them, I was, you know, it was, it was uh, like a revelation. So I, I really started to get interested in, in jazz and blues once I heard them, right? But, you know, how do you find that music? And this is, again, as you and I were chatting, uh, you know, there is no internet. Uh, you know, how, how do you know that that music exists? So, you know, early on, uh, you know, the non-commercial radio uh, you know, there were no commercial jazz stations and there were no commercial blues stations, no commercial world music stations. You know, you really, you know, stations, the early history of stations like XPN and uh, WXDR, you know, just putting the music out so people, some people did spin down to the left end of the radio dial and would just randomly bump into the, or bluegrass, uh, would bump into these things and stop and say, what's that? What is that? I've never heard that. So sure. it was, I mean, it was... FM radio and non-commercial FM radio was just so important, you know, culturally for that music to, to exist and, and people to become aware of it. I mean, nowadays it's so easy. Somebody mentions, you know, hey, there was this guy, Charlie Parker or whatever, and oh, I'll type him in and I'll go up on YouTube and it's everything he ever did 
live recordings of him, video of him, and you can, of course, then you spend the rest of your life on YouTube. But I mean, it's right. a very different, very, very different world. Uh, and, uh, and FM radio was just so critical for that, you know, sure. for so many years. Was RTI playing jazz back then? Right. Or? So RTI, I could pick up, to, if I fiddled with my antenna, right, uh, I could pick up RTI and RTI, absolutely, uh, you know, had a huge impact. And all the, uh, all the DJs back then, you had a lot of, it was all students, you know, or community members. Actually, I would give RTI a lot of credit for bringing in community. We, we did here too. And in fact, most of the community members here at uh, VUD were recruited by students, you know, went out and found folks in the community who had an interest in music mm-hmm. and kind of roped them in. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, RTI had a lot of community members, uh, you know, uh, there. And some of them were pretty politically progressive, shall we say. In fact, they used to call themselves, you know, instead of program, your programmer, some of them would call themselves your deprogrammer. You know that that could happen. Uh, you know when you just open up the airwaves to the people, <laughs> for uh-huh. lack of a better word. That's all right. Uh, you know, uh, you know some, some pretty 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 great moments. How did you find your way to WXDR and WVUD? You know, we mentioned earlier that I was starting to uh, bumble around on the uh, on the left end of the dial. I was living close enough to Newark. You know, our ten watt radio signal <laughs> was covering. You know four or five mile radius of the city. Right. Uh, one day I just bumped down and stumbled across 91.3. And I want to say George Stewart might've been on the air doing his Newt Taft main. I'm, I'm sorry, George, if I pronounced that incorrectly. Uh, but it was like name that tune backwards or uh. whatever. Um, <laughs> uh, uh, and uh, George and his host, co-host, uh, Toby Celery, just basically had a call-in show. Right. Where right. Yeah, that was, you know, just to get conversation going or whatever. You know, they might play a song or two. But then you know, people would call in and then, you know, they would riff on them or what have you. Right. Uh, and I just stumbled. I stumbled on that Georgia show and it just caught my attention. Uh, and, you know, I was like, boy, I didn't expect to hear that. <laughs> Cool. Um, and so then I started listening, you know, to uh, WXDR more and, you know, more stuff I heard, more I got interested in it and finally got so interested in it. And I think there might even been a call out, you know, summer's coming or what have you. And I mean, we never, ever, I mean, one of the rules was, I mean, we never had dead air 24 hours a day. Right. Never, ever, ever had dead I air. I remember it well. Um, and there was always a student basically, or community, but mostly students would cover every show all the time. So I think summer was coming and they might have thrown out a, hey, <laughs> you're, you know, we need bodies or whatever. Yeah, hours uh, to fill. Please yeah. come down, you know. So mm-hmm. I think, uh, you know, I was, I was uh, close to uh, graduating at that point, but came down and they were like, well, you know, you need a, you can't just go in the air. You need like a third class radio telephone operator's license or whatever, you know, from the FCC. The management here, I think it was Walt Reichel, was increasing the number of people that got licenses here. Yeah, I think uh, Walt actually taught a communications course. Actually, I think Walt had uh, something to do with actually getting the radio station on the air, working with the administration, sort of a, a, a interface between the students and the administration because he uh, had a connection to the communications department. And I think he actually uh, taught a course. I was I didn't take the course, but uh, I'm pretty sure he taught a communications course. Yeah, I think you're um, right. And part of it, 
uh, was uh, the FCC requirements to uh, get your uh, license. And if I'm not mistaken, at the end of that course, he would actually take the class to Philadelphia uh, where they would take the test and they'd be eligible to be DJs. So he played, you know, he created a pool of potential DJs, uh, wow. you know, as, as part of his uh, communications uh, class. Oh, very cool. Yeah, he told me he had to get the license and I was interested enough. I went to, uh, there were no radio shacks in it. might have been like Lafayette Electronics. or Anyway, I went to a local electronics store and it was like how to get your FCC license or whatnot. Read the book, went up to Philly. Mm-hmm. You know, I think I still have a little certificate somewhere. Maybe I think Linda, Linda has one too. She referenced it. She still yeah, has. Yeah, she hers. brought it in. She sat right there and produced yeah. it the uh, couple of weeks ago. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, um, uh, you know, went got the license and then uh, you know they they started to throw me. You know, because you know we had no dead air, and so at that point uh, they needed uh, some jazz DJs and there was a. Um, a guy, Niall Stanley, said, you know, we need a jazz DJ. <laughs> uh, so, you know, you could do that. Um, you know, so that was my first. But over the years, actually, Susie Wallenberg, the late Susie Wallenberg, talked me into doing Roots. I did actually Roots program for maybe three years, Tuesday wow. morning. Do you think you start, are you starting like maybe in 78? When do you think you got your license? Yeah, 78. I yeah. think summer of 78 I started to. Okay. I mean, and to fill in during the summer, right? In the summer, I think, you know, I did whatever you want to call it, the free form, we'll call it rock or whatever, you know, did mm-hmm. that, you know, did the jazz show a little bit, even did the world music show on Sundays for a while. I forget, they might even just call it the international show. I, forget, I don't even think it had a name, but it was like an hour on Sundays. Did a root show for uh, or for three years or so, and got really interested in roots and bluegrass music, and uh, you know, Conowingo Dam near the Conowingo Dam. These have like a big uh, bluegrass uh, festival, low budget, and you could camp out. You know, I used to hang out there for a couple years, and uh, but uh, you know, I have to say the radio station really uh, had an enormous impact on my uh, musical. <laughs> Uh, taste and you know I I love all music uh, but it you know, I'll, I'll attribute it really to you know non-commercial radio and uh, this station especially but you know XPN and uh, NPFW and you know some of the guys on XPN this guy Michael Cascuna I think who did the jazz show there left there and became he's like one of the most renowned like jazz music producers producers right yeah right, I was yeah, gonna say yeah right XPN you know XPN DJ student. So eventually you settled in the jazz rotation. Right. Definitely loved the music, got very interested in it. And of course, as I graduated and, and, and got a regular income, you know, it started to really, you know, lots of jazz, and a huge jazz history in our area, right? I mean, in our own town, right? And, uh, you know, Philadelphia and Washington and Baltimore and New York. I mean, you know, the East Coast jazz. Sure, sure. Uh, you know, it's uh, ground zero, so, you know, uh, when, I, when I got some pocket change, then I used to, you know, go to New York and Philadelphia and Baltimore and Washington and, and, uh, and see all the, you know, all the legends or whatever. And then more interesting to me was, uh, you know, there was still, there is now too, but really back in the, uh, you know, the end of the 70s, the 80s, uh, there's still a huge uh, uh, interest in the music. The music was still living in the communities. It was alive and well in the community. So you could go to Philadelphia into a local community bar and there would just be fantastic local musicians playing jazz, as good as you would hear anywhere. And you know, there's just a local community hanging out and, and digging it. So for a, a large part of the 80s, you know, every weekend, 
friend of mine, I mentioned maybe John Crowley, you know, him and he and I would just go up to Philly. We'd get the local newspaper and we'd see if there was any kind of local, little local bar or whatnot. would be advertising, hey, we got so-and-so, whatnot, playing, sure. and whatnot. Uh-huh. And we were just all through Philadelphia checking out the local music scene. Well, you're out there researching music for, for the audience, aren't you? That's, yeah. That's another thing that we do as DJs here. Well, listen, I know you have a lot on your plate these days, but thanks for coming in and, uh, and telling your story. Yeah, thanks for the invite. Sure. You've been listening to Disc Jockey Confidential here on WVUD. These shows are part of longer interviews I conducted over the past few years, so some of the times and dates mentioned are not current. I hope to have the complete interviews available as podcasts in the near future. Tune in next Monday at 8.30 a.m. for another edition of Disc Jockey Confidential. Uh, now, I was mm-hmm. actually very upset at one moment in my life when I could no longer get them because right next to their frequency uh, in Elkton, Maryland, W-O-E-L, uh, a fundamentalist Christian station came on and just obliterated PFW's yeah. signal so I couldn't get them. And even there was no internet then. So for a while, I, you know, I just hated W-O-E-L. Uh, for denying me my uh, right my my, uh, uh, my WPFW. Um, That's the curse of the left hand side of the dial, isn't it? Right, but then I got interested in the you know sidebar. You know, some of the stuff on WOEL, if I'm saying it right, was pretty. I used to listen to uh, on Shackled and uh, Ranger Bill. I mean, for entertainment purposes, I used to actually. I would tune in on on occasion. What uh, kind of shows were they? On Shackle was always a story, a half hour program, I believe. I think it might even still be on. Uh, it was a half hour st- a story about someone who just fell so low in life that they couldn't possibly get any lower. It would be, I don't know, drugs and alcohol and whatever, you name it. I mean, you know, and the part that would interest me is just how the how low can you go? Because every time the program came on and they would introduce somebody, hi, my name's Bob, I'd be like, how low can he go? Uh, and, <laughs> and it would always you, just get down there. And then, of course, you know, they would meet some missionary or something and you sure. know, their whole life would be better. Uh, but uh, I would tune in quite regularly. Oh, good. Uh, <laughs> I'm glad they had some listeners. That's good. And Dickinson, it's now about to be torn down. And Rodney for a while, which is about, you know, you're old when you see a dorm being built. <laughs> And lived in it in the beginning, and now it's torn down. Yeah, right, you know, right, exactly. You've been around a while. I know. Rodney is gone, and right. And Dickinson's and Dickinson. about to become uh, some townhomes. Yeah, yeah. But, uh, I mean, one example with that would, with that would be Harrison Wrigley Jr., uh, like a 30-year host on WRTI, uh, who was a uh, custodian in the Philadelphia public school system. Um, but, the, you know... Education, why important and can be life-changing, I'm an example of that, doesn't mean that there aren't just average person on the street who is incredibly knowledgeable about music or any other subject. And this guy, Harrison Wrigley Jr., the custodian of the public school system, probably one of the most knowledgeable people in jazz that one could ever meet anywhere. I mean, you could have gone to school your whole life and got a degree in jazz, and you wouldn't come close to this guy. And... uh, uh, he used to, you know, just because of his love of jazz, he would just hang out at RTI and help the uh, other community members and students put on their show and make suggestions and what have you. And mm-hmm. uh, he got on the air. Uh, and, you know, if you're a Philadelphia jazz fan uh, or an RTI fan and you go back, 
you know, there's probably no more famous, you know, radio personality than Harris, who's passed away not that long ago. Uh, and then he, because of his that exposure and his knowledge, he was actually teaching university courses in jazz, wow. uh, you know. And so, but I mean, the, the ability for uh, community members to actually have access to, you know, radio and programming and to bring their knowledge and love of the music, uh, you know, that was a pretty special moment. I mean, I think RTI now, you know, largely is, you know, most radio, I mean, everybody, you know, I mean, I won't, I won't go there, but I'll go there a little bit, you know, XPN, RTI, everybody, you know, sort of been constrained, shall we say, or the, the you know, the, um, the universities or whatever that sponsored the stations have all of a sudden taken a lot of control over the stations. Right. And that, that, um, that freedom of like somebody to just walk in off the street and says, you know, I'd love this music and I think I got a, an angle on it that maybe, you know, you, you're, you're not covering or not aware of. I mean, you know, those days are, are pretty much behind us, but some pretty special people. And you know, we're mentioning uh, WPFW. When I could get that, there was this guy named DeBama who was a big, big influence on me. DeBama uh, in Washington, D.C., you know, he, uh, another guy just kind of, of course, PFW, it's all community members. But, you know, this guy was was just a fantastic radio host. And, again, another guy walked off the street uh, and, and, and brought his uh, – in fact, there was a guy on, uh, you know, a New Orleans angle. There was a guy on PFW until like two years ago used to do like – I think he might have called it like cowboy jazz or whatever. Yeah. But, but he had a take on the music that was just so unique where he would mix in, you know, New Orleans music and jazz and, and uh, uh, Cajun music. You know, it, it was, he was just fantastic. And you'll never find another person that could do what he did. Uh, and right. he couldn't go to school to learn what he did. Uh, you know, it's only a community person with his interest that could pull, and it was an incredibly popular uh, show on the radio station. So that magic course in Philly, you know, the legend of legends was the uh, Clef Club, uh, and the Clef Club in Philly origins go back. To, you know, folks can look this up and see how wrong I am on the dates, but you know, maybe back to the twenties or so. Philadelphia segregated in every which way, and the music community segregated. So, you know, there was a white musicians union, and blacks weren't welcome to join the <laughs> the white musician union. So they formed mm-hmm. their own union. You know, I forget the lo- local something. You know, I, right. I, I can't recite you there. Yeah. You know, I was a member of Local 42 for a while, so I know they all have their numbers. Uh, so they formed their own musicians union. So many well-known jazz musicians were members of that Philadelphia uh, musicians union, uh, you know, Coltrane and Dizzy Gillespie and you could go on down the line. But the Clef Club was the longest lasting African-American musicians union in the United States. Uh, you know, even post, you know, we'll, we'll say things start to get desegregated or what have you. 64 or roughly. Or, yep. Yeah. But right. the reason I'll mention the Clef Club is when I ran into them, they were in South Philadelphia. Um, and they had a uh, two townhouses, I guess, together. Uh, big townhouses in South Philly, uh, maybe around 13th Street or something. But anyway, then it, the whole top floor, they knocked out all the walls. It was a pretty large space. And uh, on Sundays, Sunday nights when there were no gigs, right, all the the legends, local Philly jazz legends, would all hang out at the Clef Club, 
you know, on the top floor, and they would play for each other right. or what have you. Mm-hmm. Um, but they were, it was such a, a, a welcoming, open, you know, hip place. Anybody could walk off the street if you knew about it. You know, they didn't really advertise it. Uh, you know, walk up the steps and walk in, and you know, they had a little bar mm-hmm. up there and what have you. And, uh, you know, some of my best memories are uh, hanging out at the Clef Club, you know, on, on a Sunday night. You know, I had to go to work on Monday morning. Well, yeah. Uh, but uh, so, you know, Philly really pretty, pretty special, uh, pretty special place. Uh, and, uh, you know, place that Ron, I turned Ron on to. It doesn't do uh, jazz anymore. But uh, my favorite place in Philadelphia was the, uh, the B&B Lounge, Bob and Barbara's, uh, which was on, which is still there. But the jazz is kind of gone uh it was on the other side it was the other side of south street so back in the day you know south street was the place right but you go abroad mm-hmm. mm-hmm. and the you know the south street kind of heading down the delaware river was the hip spot right if you made a mm-hmm. left we well, couldn't make it one way but if you went to the left on broad street that side of south street was like you don't go there nobody goes down there i mean it's all been gentrified now it's all the hipsters are there mm-hmm. but uh in the 80s you didn't you didn't go down that side of south street but that's mm-hmm. where um, gertz lounge and uh and the b&b lounge bob and barbara's uh was there and uh that was a place where this guy nate wiley would reside and uh nate was like a legend in local philadelphia jazz and the cool thing about that the reason i went there I was, you know used to spend a lot of of uh Saturday nights there, but Nate was like old guard. I mean, he went back to the, you know, the forties or whatever. And I mean, he was well-respected, probably could have made a living as a musician, but he just hung out in Philly and, uh, you know, really well-respected by the local guys. And, uh, on Saturday nights, you know, uh, Nate, I think maybe Friday nights too, but, uh, Saturday nights, Nate would be at the B and B and all the young guys, uh, and gals, in Philly, he had like an open, open jam session, whatever. You could, you know, you could come up on stage with Nate, but you only got to play one or two songs. Uh, and so Nate would be up playing. He played saxophone. And you'd see all these young guys come in like timid, scared to death. You know, they'd have their little cases with their instruments in it. And they'd be mm-hmm. hanging out at the bar looking all tense or whatnot, you know, hoping Nate would like acknowledge them, uh, you know, and then he'd let them come up you know, on the stage and they could call any song they wanted, you know, cause they've been practicing, you know, they thought they had something down or whatnot where they could sure. ha- hang with Nate. Mm-hmm. Uh, they could call any song. They what could, was his instrument? Was he played saxophone, okay. tenor. Mm-hmm. And uh, so he'd let them come up on stage and, you know, play that one song and, it, and he'd riff with them and usually annihilate them. Uh, mm-hmm. But, uh, and if they're really good, he might let them play another, you know, but you know, the B, to let, you know, maybe do two songs with Nate would be like the highlight of your life <laughs> if, you, you, know, yeah. if you got to do that. But, uh, and Nate used to hang out at the Clef Club as, uh, as well. Um, so uh, I don't know how we got there. but yeah. No, that's cool. I, I love to hear about that stuff. Yeah. Very but anyway, cool. so yeah, I mentioned, so now, so I, you know, when Ron Roadblock, you know, started to hang out in Philadelphia, you know, I told him, hey, you got to check out the B&B, you know, Bob and Barbers. But, you know, Nate had passed away and, and that whole the jazz thing had passed away, you know, had, had gone. They might have a jazz musician there, but still a hip place, cool place to hang out. So I think Ron, you know, got turned on to the, uh, the B&B. Plus he had the B&B special, which used to be, the B&B special I think was a, uh, uh, a shot of Jack Daniels, some kind of whiskey, 
Maybe it wasn't Jack, but a shot of whiskey, a beer, and a hot dog for like, I don't know, three bucks or something like that. Uh-huh. So that was, you know. That is special. Yeah, help make it special. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. I love all those old stories about uh, the hit places to hang out. I know you go to the Nomad once in a while, don't you? Right. I'll mention some place that very few people, you know, won't go there. But, you know, there's be a place in Wilmington on Front Street called the Everybody Club. Uh, which very very few people ever knew about. Uh, it was on the it was uh, it was not too far from the train station, an old townhouse, um, and uh, you know I don't I don't think it had a name. It might have said Everybody Club. You just had to know it was there, and there was a button you'd push and the door would open, <laughs> uh, and you'd go up the stairs. Uh, this is back in the I guess eighties, early eighties. I forget how I, maybe John Crowley told me about it. Uh, so I just went there one day, pushed the button, the door <laughs> opens. Uh, you know, you walk upstairs, there was a book you had to sign your name, which, you know, you never put your real name. Uh, right. But right. I want to say it had to be one of the earliest, uh, it was a. It was primarily an African-American gay bar, uh, you know, when those things would have to almost be underground. Uh, very cheap alcohol, some great music, and the best, well, a lot of great things about one of them was they had a back door that opened up, and the back door you'd walk out on the roof of another building, and it was like the best view of the city of Wilmington that you could imagine. I mean, it's just incredible view of the city. Uh, But, you know, just to know about the place, you know, and the secret button, you know, and to go upstairs and... uh, uh, and it always had a, they always had DJ and music and cheap beer and, and the whole, you know, it was pretty, pretty great. You know, there's a lot of little secret places in and around town that, uh, that if someone didn't tell you about it, uh, you would never know. But yeah, the Nomad yeah. is a great place. Nomad reminds me in some ways of the old B&B lounge in, in Philadelphia. But there were other, a lot of great, you know, even Stephen knows better than I, but there used to be a place called Club Tahiti, uh, over in Northeast Wilmington. You know, they just had an old building and they turned it into a jazz club. I heard a lot of great live music there. No heat in the winter. You would actually be sitting in Club Tahiti in the winter and you'd see your breath. Uh, mm-hmm. Fantastic music, fantastic people. You know, there was a lot going on. And there was a Northeast club in Wilmington that would have uh, music on, you know, jazz music on occasion. Always had something going on. But uh, there was a lot of neat places uh, in the in the city that some wouldn't last very long. they just pop up and go away. Uh, right. But, you know, if you... If you uh, you know, we're in the right social circle, circles, you'd be made aware of them and, uh, mm-hmm. you know, could, could check them out. That's cool. 